So, brethren, at this time, we're blessed to have our sermon for today brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley. And the message is entitled, The Peace of God. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone, as it always is, on this Sabbath day. And on a praise of worship day, that, which was very nice. You guys do a fantastic job, I have to say. Uh, it's, it's, it's very uplifting, what you guys do. And I'm not just saying that. I'm not just giving you lip service. It really is. It's, it's, it's beautiful words, and I know how much work you guys uh, put into that. And uh, God's spirit is definitely felt. Uh, through your guys' work and uh, the service that you provide this church. So I just want to thank you, uh, all of you who participate in the praise and worship. And so as Matt just pointed out, uh, the title of my message today is The Peace of God. And so I just want to kind of read, we all know that the, We all know that uh, the idea of the peace of God uh, probably has many different meanings to many of us. There's different ways that we can think of this. Uh, we know that the Bible, the New Testament at least, uh, was written in Greek. And so sometimes we can't look at terms in our English language and think that they're always going to mean the exact same thing in the original language of the biblical narrative. Uh, but if you were just to go to the dictionary and just Search, Google search peace. I looked at that. I like to sometimes look at English definitions. And, you know, when we, when we use certain terms, uh, you know, how do we use it in our common language? In the dictionary, they're adding words all the time. There's different uh, ways that we use different phrases. But I just did a little, little quick search on Google for the word peace. And it gives you two different, two, two different, de different definitions. And so the second one is oftentimes what I think a lot of us think of when we think of the peace of God. And that is freedom from, freedom from or secession of war or violence. Now just not long ago, we went and kept what's called the Feast of Tabernacles in the Scriptures. And we read about the soon coming kingdom of God. And it's something we talk about year in, year out. And that is that at some point in time, the glorious kingdom of God is going to come to this earth and Christ is going to rule, Christ is going to reign, and this earth will be filled with God's peace. And I think everyone in here would agree and longs for that day. But there's another way in which the Bible uh, talks about the peace of God, and that is the peace of that we have as individuals, ourselves, and as a collection of individuals living in the present time. Because we know that Christ's return is, well, we really don't know. We don't know when that's going to happen. We don't know if that's in a, in a year or in a hundred years. But the Bible, and in particular the New Testament, what we're going to read today, coming from Paul's epistle to the Philippians church at Philippi, he talks about this peace of God that surpasses all understanding. This, 
individual peace that we have within ourselves. Because of our knowledge and our communion with the God of all the universe. And our understanding in what Christ has done for us. And so we're going to pick it up in Philippians, the fourth chapter, at the end of the letter. And I want to pick it up in verse 4. Verse 4. Paul talks about all these different things going on. He's speaking to a church, and if you read this letter, a lot of the letter is concerned with exhortation. In, in other words, Paul encouraging the, the individuals that are living here in the church at Philippi uh, to do and to have certain attitudes. There's doctrine in this uh, letter, but a lot of it is concerned with his encouragement, his exhortation about how to be certain ways. And in verse 4 of chapter 4, Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. In other translations, that's the word sometimes that comes across as petitions. With thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so based upon this text, this is what this message is built around. And I have just a few points that I want us to reflect upon today. Because I think all of us could probably agree that, you know, we don't always probably live out the peace of God. There's probably, you know, and I'm not saying that you have work to do or I have work to do. We all know we all have work to do. But there's probably times in our lives where we can think of, you know, I really wasn't holding on to the peace of God in that phase in my life, in that moment in my life. And Paul gives us this formula, and it reflects much of what he has to say in many of his letters, and it reflects kind of back to what Christ himself says. So we're going to look at this passage, and, and we're going to look at just a few points. My first one, it's hard not to make a point out of something that Paul says twice in a row. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let's just think about that. I mean, Paul is emphasizing something here. If we think about how this is written, it's almost written with Paul almost assuming or predicting that people are going to put in a but. You know what I'm saying? You know, mom and dad's told you to do something when you were growing up. You know, you need to go clean your room, but, you know, you, you, or the, person, the, the child that they're saying that to kind of comes back with a but. Well, well, how can I do that whenever, you know, something's going on? For example, in Paul's letter, he's talking to a group of people that are starting to experience some persecution. They're starting to experience some hardships, some difficult things. Paul's overall seems to be pretty happy, but he's predicting... When Paul comes out and says, rejoice in the Lord always, some of those reading his letter are probably going to be saying, but Paul, how can we rejoice? Do you understand what's going on here? Have you not heard about the reports? Have you not heard about some of the situations? And so Paul is emphasizing this idea of rejoice. It's interesting because Paul's talking to the Philippians, right? But isn't this true for all of us? In a carnal way... Can't we all probably think of many things, many reasons 
Why? Well, you know, I should rejoice, but have you heard about what's going on in my life? Have you seen the hardships that I've had? You know, I was diagnosed with this illness, or I'm, and, and of course, those are hardships, not to uh, downplay those all, at all. But there's a lot of things in this life, unfortunately, that can, in a carnal way, give us reasons why we should not rejoice. And there's time for sorrow, and we're going to see that as Paul talks about in different letters. There's times for, to be sad. But even in the midst of that, we can still rejoice. So Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And we have to understand, and we have to see that double emphasis that, uh, that Paul, Paul gives us. Okay? Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord despite what's going on in our lives. Despite the, the different persecutions that we have, despite the, the things that maybe people are bringing our way, despite the things that we are going in, uh, that, that's going on in our lives, maybe we're having, you know, personality, and Paul specifically talks a lot in this letter about different things specific to the Philippians, about how they've been persecuted, about how they've been attacked by false doctrines, about how there's personality clashes in the church. That's always going to be the case. There's always going to be personality clashes within the church. But Paul continues to admonish those living in Philippi to rejoice always. Have you ever had someone come up to you and say, man, you are always rejoicing? That's really impressive. I have not. I have not. In fact, this message is probably for me more than anyone in this building and probably anyone in this part of the region of the United States. But wouldn't that be wonderful if that's how we display it, if that's how we lived our lives? I want us to all think back to a time where we really rejoiced. There's so many examples that we probably can think of in our lives, so many good things that we could probably point to. Maybe it's when we had our first child. Maybe it's when we, we got married. Not everyone's been married here. Not everyone has a child. But most everyone here has probably experienced the joy of the Lord's salvation. Now obviously I'm not talking about the joy that you know, we've actually come into eternal life. That we've, been, you know, that we've been made spirit beings yet. We know that's future. But there's a time where most of us in here, well, we came into the knowledge of the truth. And that truth about Jesus Christ, and that truth about the saving blood of Christ, that truth about how God wants us to live out this, these certain ways that are, uh, that, that are based upon His character. Do you remember how joyous that was? I remember how much rejoicing went on in my life. And I'm not just saying that. I really do. And interestingly, there was this glow that, you know, I remember having about myself. And, and about, I couldn't even, and, and most of you guys are probably the same way. And women, I use that in a, in a general way. But what I'm saying is that most everyone in here has experienced that. They've experienced that rejoicing. That almost that sense of tranquility because we have met, we have come into the family of God. Of course, by means of being begotten, not quite born yet, 
But we came into the knowledge of, uh, of Christ. We understood that no matter what happened in our life, we're now a part of this program that God has set for His children. That there is this grand future ahead of us. And that nothing can take it from us. And of course we know that there can be, you know, we can, we can you know, put our hand to the plow and we can look back and we can lose out. But what I mean is that nobody can take that from us. Nobody. No matter what happens to us in life. No matter what kind of arrows are thrown away. No matter if, if, if we have a tragedy that happens and, and tomorrow something happens and, and, and we're not on this earth any longer in the physical sense. It's not taking that promise away. And that there's this glorious world in which Christ is going to rule here. And we are going to fellowship eternally with Him. That's a joy that I remember really, really, really succinctly. And I, I think all of us can, can, can think back at the time that we experienced that. This word joy and rejoicing is very, very similar. They're, they're paired together, rejoicing and joy. And it's interesting because when we look at the biblical landscape, so much of the New Testament is wrapped up, especially Paul's letter with this idea of being joyful in the midst of hardship, in the midst of things that are not going right in this life. Rejoice in all things. Again, I say rejoice. How do we do that? Think back to that reality that we understand that we, when we first learned, when we first came into the knowledge. I want us to look at an example. We're not going to quite turn to the story, but several years ago I did give a message entitled, The Joy of the Lord's Salvation. And it was a story, uh, or in that message I kind of looked at, and I want us to think about this, I want us to think about David and the story of Bathsheba. Because we've, we've read this story. We understand what happens. David's this king, right? We know his storyline. We know that he's this little shepherd boy. He's the most unlikely individual to be chosen as king, to be anointed as king. Saul, on the other hand, was the most likely. Of course, that is based upon the world's standards. Based upon God's standards, David was the most likely because we know that God looks upon the heart of a person, not upon their physical stature. And in the process of time, David gets in the situation where he has this lust, this covetousness for this Uriah the Hittite's uh, wife. And so, in the process of time, what does he do? Well, he comes up with this plan to take her, basically take her in, has an affair with her, so to speak, and then she becomes pregnant. And so David's in this, you know, this turmoil, trying to figure out how he's going to hide this and how bad this is going to look. And so he figures out this plan, and the plan seems to work. Because he figures out a way for this man, who's the actual husband of this woman, Bathsheba, to die. But not seem like it was David doing it, but we know it was. Because we know that David sent this individual, this man, to the front of the battle. So it would almost be a surety that he would pass away. And whenever that would happen, guess what? David could take her as his wife, and David could seem like he was innocent, like he was just doing something charitable, that this woman's husband was killed in battle and he was doing kind of, you know, he was doing her a favor and he was taking her in as one of his wives and of course they had have a child. 
There's this interesting way to look at this. Because when we look at Psalm, the 51st chapter, there's this beautiful psalm. It's, it's, it's mixed with, you know, a lot of sadness on David's part. But it's so true. And we know that this psalm is based upon Nathan's brutal honesty of David. David goes to Nathan, who was the prophet at that time, and Nathan tells him about, basically gives, us, gives him this analogy, right? And in this analogy, Nathan's talking about how this you know, person had something unrighteously taken from him, unjustly taken from him. And David gets angry and basically lashes out and says that whoever did that in this story, in this you know, parable, in this analogy that you're giving me, that person should be basically be put to death. He should basically be ripped from everything that he has. And Nathan looks at David and essentially says, the person I'm talking about is you. And in Psalm 51, we see the emotions of David based upon what he comes to the realization. He realizes the sin in which he has committed. And my favorite part of Psalm 51 is in verse 7 through 12. It says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. He understands of this iniquity that he's got himself involved in. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12 is key. Restore. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He uses this word as, uh, of restoration, of restore, understanding that David had felt, had understood what the Lord's salvation was. He had felt that. He had experienced the Lord's salvation. And he lost that feeling. His sin dimmed and overshadowed that joy that he was a part of. So I want us to think about that. Think about the joy that we received when we first came into the knowledge of what God has in store for us. That we experienced when we first were baptized. When we first tasted that first part of the salvation process. And I think that right there can help us keep in context and keep in uh, mind how to continue to have that continual rejoicing. My second main point is let your gentleness be known to all. Let your gentleness be known to all. One of the songs that we just sung a few minutes ago, the lyric, and I might be paraphrasing, it says, let our hearts be guided by mercy. Let our hearts be guided by mercy. Matt talked about grace. Talked about grace a few minutes ago in his devotional. About how we need grace. That we need to give out grace because of the grace that's been bestowed upon us. And that is so true in every sense of, the, in every sense of that idea. 
Just rereading verse 5 of Philippians. Paul says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. This word gentleness is somewhat difficult. It's difficult because it doesn't necessarily give out the full... It's, it's hard to explain, as some commentaries have kind of brought out, because it can mean many different things. But this word gentleness is the Greek word apikis in the Greek. And it has been translated into English by various translations as gentle, yielding, kind, forbearing, and lenient. And so it's been said by many that have looked at this word and looked at the context of the letter to the Philippians, to, been said by many Bible expositors, that it has come to mean yielded rights or ready to forgive. And let's just think about that. It's the idea of having a gracious spirit. Understanding that sometimes people might not be completely perfect to you, but you're not first and center ready to just lash out at them. But you have tolerance. That you have yielded your rights in the sense of being able to point out how they've wronged you, you're ready to forgive. It's a meaning that when someone wrongs you and you have a reason to be angry and retaliate, you yield this right and are ready to forgive. It's a mindset. And it's a mindset that our Savior, Jesus Christ, continually displayed as we read the biblical narrative, as we read the Gospels, as we read the stories, and as we look back and think about our own experiences with Him. And we think of how gracious God has been with us and how much we wronged God, how much we were sinners, how much we don't deserve we don't deserve to be a part of that plan that God has presented to us. But despite that, because of the love of Christ, because of the love of the Father, they have reached out and they have graciously saved us from our own iniquity. It's interesting because this idea of rejoicing, it's kind of like a prerequisite to be gentle. I mean, it's kind of hard to really be gentle. We're kind of all... Grumpy cat and stuff like that, right? Okay? You know what I'm talking about. We're, we're, we're in a bad mood all the time. Uh, we're angry. We have a bad attitude. I mean, we could probably just think about many times uh, that we have maybe not displayed gentleness to someone. It probably wasn't in the context of when we were rejoicing. Maybe it was, but probably not. It was probably more in the context to when we were having more of a Maybe in a bad mood. Maybe we were frustrated with something. Maybe we were, we were irritable. Probably not in the context of when we were rejoicing or in a state of rejoicing. Paul is commanding our conduct and attitude towards all be consistent with the gentleness of Christ. Let's just think about Jesus and his gentleness. Sure, there was times when Jesus had a righteous rebuke. And we see examples of that in the scriptures. But we also see many examples of Jesus being the anomaly. The, the seeming contradiction of what people typically would assume or predict him to behave or react to certain situations. In other words, Jesus oftentimes did the exact opposite of what people would think he would do in certain situations. 
based upon the thinking of the day, and not just the worldly thinking, even the thinking of his own Jewish brethren, even many of his own disciples. You know, we've touched upon this in recent weeks, but a great example is Jesus and the children. You know, the children come to Jesus, and he's in the midst of his work, and some of them are trying to shoo him away, and Jesus does the exact opposite of what most people would think someone who was busy and about really important religious things, right, would do. He summons the children and, and embraces them. Jesus doesn't even forget about the Gentiles or the Roman soldiers. Let's just think about the context that Jesus is in. Jesus is a Jewish individual living in Palestine or the world that, you know, is Galilee and Judea and you have Samaria in between. He's living in a world in a Jewish context with his Jewish brethren that's mixed with different Gentiles. But many of these Gentiles are Romans who many people that are Jewish deem as the enemy. They're the enemy. That's the Roman Empire. Those are the individuals that, are, that have come in here and that have taken over. Taken over what's rightfully sovereign Israel's, Or what Israel is longing to be. Or longing to get their independence from. Gentiles, even Roman officials, would come up to Jesus. And seek Jesus' help. And Jesus wouldn't show them away. He wouldn't look at them and say, you're the enemy. I'm not going to help you. You're the reason that we're you know, downtrodden here in, in Palestine. You're the reason for all these problems. Jesus didn't do that. Let's just think about this. Even in the midst of him being arrested, the scriptures tell us that Jesus is being arrested by Romans. Peter cuts one of the Romans' ears off. The guy that's arresting Jesus, Jesus heals his ear. That right there is a great example of the gentleness of Jesus. How about sinners, or what the New Testament oftentimes in the Gospel accounts calls sinners? Tax collectors. Another contextual thing that we need to understand is that Jews at this time could not stand tax collectors. They were the worst of the worst. Many of these tax collectors were Jews who many Jews thought were traitors because these tax collectors would be hired by Romans. And Romans would say, hey, look, you're going to collect the taxes for us, and you can kind of, you know, get a little off the top. And so when they would go to about collecting the taxes from the Jewish people, their own brethren many times, like Levi or Matthew, they hated these individuals. These individuals were traitors in their minds. They were, they, they were helping uh, persecute or, or basically put down and keep down these Jewish inferiors in their minds. That's the way that they looked at it. But Jesus, it's an interesting little story, and Luke the fifth chapter, I'm just going to go there real quick. He says something really interesting. And we're going to look at another passage in a few minutes that's also going to kind of highlight this idea. In verse 27, of Luke the fifth chapter. Jesus after these things. He went out and saw a tax collector. Named Levi. The enemy right. The worst of the worst. Sitting at the tax office. And he said to him follow me. So he left all. Rose up and followed him. Then Levi. Whom we also know as Matthew by the way. Gave him a great feast in his house. In his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. Other worst of the worst. 
Jesus is at a party with the worst of the worst, essentially. Verse 30, And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So we can see this attitude that's coming out among the Pharisees and the scribes. And the Pharisees and scribes say this, and Jesus answers back in verse, 30, in verse 31, Jesus, Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And as we unfold the narrative of the New Testament, we realize that's everyone. The most righteous or the ones we think to be the most righteous, they're sinners and named among the sinners as well. Jesus came to save all. We are to show patience, love, long-suffering, graciousness, selfishness, selflessness, that is, just as Christ has shown to us. How can we even think about treating people in any other way knowing how much God has put up with us as individuals? And who do we do this to? Who do we show this gentleness to? Just people in the church? Just our own brethren? Paul says all men. He's referring to all people. All individuals. Not just those in the church. Getting a lot of feedback here. I'm sorry. Unbutton my jacket. Maybe that'll help. Not just people in the church, not just the brethren, but all men, all people, all human beings, everyone we come in contact with. That rude boss, that annoying neighbor, those individuals on the highway that you think are trying to kill you. All people we're to show this gentleness to. We're to show us show this 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 graciousness to. As earlier Matthew pointed out. It's part of a formula that Jesus himself gave us in Matthew the 5th chapter. Matthew the 5th chapter, verse 43. Jesus says this. One of those you've heard it said. You've heard it said of old. You know, I've been told one time, one of the worst or one of the, 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 the biggest phrases in the English Language that stunts growth is the phrase, this is how we have always done it. Well, this is how we've always done it. And don't get me wrong, there's ways that we do things that are tried and true and, and, and good and proper and, and good traditions and good things. But oftentimes, we as human beings, we get in that mode of, well, this is the way we've always done it. Equals... That's the way it needs and should and has to be done. Jesus says this in verse 43 of Matthew 5. You have heard it that, is said, that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren, only what do you do more than others? 
Do not even the tax collectors do so? Can you imagine? I mean, he's almost like kind of, this is like, you know, he's, he's really trying to prick them in their heart. Uh, he's taking, as mentioned a minute ago, a group of people that are looked at as the worst of the worst, as I've emphasized so much here. And here he's saying, hey, look, you're really no good and no better than those people that you can't stand so much if you do these things, if you have this attitude, if you just love your brother and don't love your enemy. And if you greet your brother, only what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. There's this idea of perfection. That's what we're going for. We understand that we're not perfect. We understand that there's only one individual that has lived on this earth physically that is perfect, and that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And He is the standard. And we have aligned ourselves with that standard. Our lives are hidden in that perfect example. And Christ and the Father are bringing us to this perfection. That's what their intent is. There is going to be a day when we are perfected. And we're perfected not because of anything of ourselves, because God is continually working in us and trying to bring us to that time of perfection. That time that the body of Christ is perfected. And of course, that will be when Christ establishes His kingdom and beyond. Let's just think about this. Let's think about this idea. Let's just think about what this does to someone. Let's just think of some personal examples. Some ideas about, you know, not only is this a formula of how to be perfect, how to be perfect just like Christ was, Let's just think of the practical application of this. Have you ever been really mad at somebody? Maybe someone you felt like wronged you. Maybe someone has done something you feel is, you know, you're really, you're, you're really, you're justified in taking it out on and retaliating. And you just really give them the business. You just really let them know. You rip into them. And guess what happens? Instead of resisting you, instead of lashing back out, they basically are gracious to you. They're very receptive. They apologize. They completely take responsibility for wronging you. Has anyone ever been in that situation where someone's done that after you've really given it to them? I know I've been in that situation. It doesn't feel very good. It softened me. It makes me feel kind of guilty. It makes me feel like, man, I, I, I'm, I'm the one that's in the wrong now. I'm the one that's in the wrong. It gives you this sense of guilty, and, and, and it's not a very good feeling. So not only is there this command to be gentle and be like Christ, to show grace, there's also this evangelistic this outreach component to it. Think about the witness that you're going to give somebody whenever you show them grace or you show them after they're lashing out to you or doing something that they're gentle. It's going to show them a great example of what Christ is like. Oftentimes, not always, it's not 
perfect. Some people are different, and, and, and they, just, they have a way of just not caring. But I would guess that majority of people will soften up a little bit. They will soften up a little bit. So there's a little transition here. And that transition is because the Lord is near. Show gentleness to all men, to all people, for the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Verse 5 says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And so he affirms this reason why we need to be gentle to all people we come into contact with. Number one, we understand because we want to be Christ-like. Because we want to be a true representation of what Christ is like. I'm not saying that we condone sin. I'm not saying that we condone uh, behaviors. When we show a gracious spirit, we have to be, aware, we have to be uh, mindful of we're doing it because that's what Christ was like, especially to us. But this idea that the Lord is at hand can be taken two ways. And both are true, I believe. We know that the Lord is at hand in the sense that He's going to return. His return is a guarantee. He's coming back. And whether that return's imminent, meaning soon and near, we don't know. It could be a year from now, two years from now, ten years from now, or a hundred years from now. And upon His return, we know that the only one which is the judge, that question was thrown out earlier, the judge will be ready to implement his judgment upon all of us for the deeds in which we did in this life. The second way that we can take this is the Lord is near in space. Who believes that Christ is with us always? We all believe that, right? That's, what, that's a truth. God and Christ promised that I am always with you. I am never forsaken you. I am never, I am always present. He is always near. And if we have God's Spirit, He lives within us and He's with us. He's among us. And so as we think about that idea, Christ is near. How do we act knowing that Christ is there with us present? Ever think about that? Be gentle to all people. Remember, Christ is right there watching. He sees you. He's within you. He's living with you. He's, he's there and present at all times. Christ is near in our midst, and we are to act as if He is physically present in all our doings, both in church, outside of church, at work, hanging out with friends, hanging out with strangers, or being out in public at all times, driving down the highways. <laughs> In either case, both of these ideas are true. Even if Jesus' return is not imminent in the sense in, in the spectrum of how we measure time today and what we think of as soon, whether he comes back in a couple years or a hundred years or three hundred years, there's one thing you need to remember about God. He's not like our mom and dad. You know, sometimes we kind of bank on, well, Maybe I won't tell them for a little while, a couple months, and then it, it, it'll be so far down the line that they'll be like, oh, you did that? Well, I can't believe you did that. Or maybe, maybe, you know, that you, mom called dad, and mom told dad what I did. 
and he's got a long day at work. She, this happened in the morning. He's going to have all these things going on, and maybe by the end of the day, he'll kind of forget. It'll kind of, you know, it won't be in his mind. It won't be fresh when he gets home to deal with me. God and Christ, God our Father and Christ, they don't have a short memory. They're not like humans. They remember. So remember that as Paul tells us. Our next main point, be still and at peace, which is the heart of what this message is all about. Verse 6 and 7 of Philippians, the fourth chapter, just to reread it. Verse 6 says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This right here is Paul telling us that there is a way to have that peace of God. Paul finally exhorts us not to be anxious, but instead replace your anxiety with prayer and supplication. Now that's a difficult thing to do. I mean, I have anxieties, I have worries, I I'm not perfect, and I think many of us in here can think of times where we've been in a situation where we've let anxiety and we've let worries get the, get the worst of us and get, the, get us to where well, that's all we focus on. You know, I want us to think about that idea. Think about a, a situation where we've worried about something. You know, we all know what worries are. I mean, sometimes we worry about little things, you know, which are silly when we think about them. But sometimes we worry about things so much that it consumes us. It's a consuming, it, it, it dictates us, it makes us a slave. Maybe we've been in a situation where we worry about something so much, that's all we think about. It consumes everything that we do. All of a sudden, this anxiety has taken over so much that we don't even enjoy the things we used to enjoy. We don't enjoy the time with our family like we should because in the back of our mind, that's what we're thinking of. It's consuming us. The hobbies that we like to partake in sometimes because of this anxiety. We don't enjoy those anymore. It dims our communion with God. It dims our closeness with God. All of a sudden, this worry, this anxiety is taking over so much that we forget and we start to lose sight of what really we're supposed to be focused on and that is God. And that is continual prayer to Him. Now, this is a difficult concept, and I think that it's something that Paul oftentimes talks about, and it's very difficult to understand, but when we read Paul, he has this line of thinking where he almost draws these two parallel lines. And these two parallel lines, one of them is this eternity with Christ, this reality that we have about God's kingdom, and about this world tomorrow that's going to come, and this physical life that we're living now. And they're kind of related, but they're not. Because in Paul, Paul's mind, he says rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. And in many of his other letters, he says the same things. No matter what you go through, continue to rejoice. Remember your salvation. Have joy. It's my joy, despite the things that I'm experiencing. And so Paul's like drawing this analogy, and it's very hard for us to swallow. And I'm not in any way, shape, or saying that it's not difficult. It's difficult. And I'm not, I'm not saying that God doesn't want us to have a good life on this earth. He does. But Paul draws this, this line, these two lines, and one of them is, is this light that we have here on this earth. And no matter what happens in that life, no matter what we go through, it does not affect that second line. It does not affect. That is a continual reality. And I'm not talking once saved, always saved. I understand that we can put our hand to the plow and look back and lose out on that. But what I'm talking about is, is that no matter what, 
Even if you have a perfect life, guess what? You can look at someone that has a perfect physical life and someone who has a terrible physical life. They both what? They both have one thing that's in common. They come to an end. They're temporal. But rejoice because that second line that Paul talks about, and, and I'm bringing this out when we look at the overall thinking of Paul and many of his different passages and why I believe that Paul oftentimes talks about rejoicing even in the midst of suffering is because of that line, because of that unchanging reality that we have salvation through Christ. And everything by prayer and supplication, that's petitions with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. Let your request be known to God. I want to go to 1 Thessalonians and read something in chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 5, verse 16, 17, and 18. Paul says in verse 16, just two words. Rejoice always. Obviously completely in connection with Philippians, the fourth chapter. Verse 4. In verse 17 it says, Pray without ceasing. In verse 18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus. I've always wondered about that idea. Pray without ceasing. What does Paul mean there? I mean, we think of prayer, we have this way of thinking about prayer, right? We think of the formality of it. We think of, well, we're bowing our head. We got our eyes closed. We're looking down to the ground. And that's, in a lot of times, in our Western culture, and the way we think about prayer, and often that's how we do pray in a, as a community, as a community of believers that are assembling together. But what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Continual communion with God. Do we live our life? Do we go about our daily lives where everything we do, we're in constant communication with God? I'm not saying that we're in our head talking to God or we're talking out loud. There's times for that. But I firmly believe that in a lot of ways, Paul is saying, are you consistently praying? Are you consistently communicating with God? When you do anything you do, are you thinking about how would God view this? What does God think? Are we more apt to think, you know, just think about this. Okay, when we go about doing things, are we more concerned about what society thinks when we do certain things? Or are we more concerned with what God thinks? Pray without ceasing. It's a habit. I don't think this is something that you just all of a sudden do. I think that this is something that you practice and that you continue to have a constant, continual communication with God. It's a mindset. It's this idea of always not thinking that, okay, well, I need to pray, but I need to go into this, you know, there's times to go into a prayer closet. There's times to get on your hands and knees and pray to God. But there's also times where we have a casual mindset, and I don't mean casual in a disrespecting way or an irreverent way. I mean 
when we are walking throughout our life and we're always thinking, God's, we're, we're, we're communicating with God by means of, of, of being calculated, of, of thinking through the actions and the steps that we take. Always measuring, is this what God wants me to do? You know, I think oftentimes we get in this idea that God doesn't really, you know, the big stuff we want to pray about, but the little stuff, God, you know, I'm not going to waste his time. He's, he's busy. He doesn't care about those things. He does care about those things. He cares about everything about us. And when we get in that mindset that we need to take everything to God, everything, I mean, think about this. Ephesians, the third chapter, verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power of a power at work within us. Let's just think about that idea and worry. Okay? Going back to the idea of worry. What do we do when we worry? What do we do when we're anxious? Sometimes, at least in my experience, when we worry, when we have anxiousness, what continues that anxiousness is because we're trying to think how we can solve the problem. We're trying to think of how we can somehow fix it. Right? Now we know the result is fearfulness, we're fretful, we're you know, disfocused, we're not completely engaged like we should be, whether it be at work, whether it be with our family, whether it be with the normal things that we do. We're not as productive in whatever tasks that we're trying to do because we're obsessed with this anxiety. Well, let's think about that. We know that those are the results, but why do we continually be anxious about certain things? Now, all of us understand, I think, there's big things that's difficult not to be anxious about that have big-time effects for us. It could be health things. You know, health things that, you know, we're, we're worried about our health, our lives, our physical lives. Those are things that are difficult not to be anxious about. But let's just think about what we do when we're anxious. We're trying to figure things out. And if we're not careful... If we're not continually praying, praying without ceasing, we can get into this, this, this situation where we're almost disconnecting our communion with God. We're more focused on the problem that's causing the anxiety than we are our line with God. Our line with God. There's an interesting quote. I think it's much more difficult to live out than to actually, what, how it sounds. sounds good, but it's difficult to live out. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Worry about nothing, pray about everything. And by doing this, instead of being internally ruined by fear and anxiety, it will be replaced by the peace of God through Christ. The peace of God through Christ. Verse 7, I'm going to read that one more time. It says, and the peace of God, here's the results, here's our last main part. The results of rejoicing always, the results of being gentleness in spirit, to all people, to praying continually, to being thankful, to continual supplication or petitions to God, taking all of our problems to God. Verse 7 of Philippians 4 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is a promise. If we make the decision to pray instead of worry. Now obviously, I think we all understand that if we're worried about something, Going and doing one little prayer is probably not going to fix the problem. We're probably 
going to continue to have that problem of worrying. It's going to take time. It's a habit. It's a mindset. But when we do this, when we pray without ceasing, Paul tells us that it will guard our hearts. The peace of God will guard our hearts. There's a little interesting word, guard, here in the Greek. It's actually a military term. It's a military term <clears throat> uh, that oftentimes means a sentry or a watcher. A sentry or a watcher is a person who would stay atop, you know, and look out and watch. Watch for in ancient times for any type of, you know, potential intruder that was trying to come into the camp. So when these things in which Paul talks about and exhorts us about, when, he, when we do these things that he commands of us, we have a guard. And that peace of God is our guard. The peace of God. But if we don't, then this guard is not on duty. And intruders or thoughts of worry and anxiety are free range. In closing, Paul closes with some interesting things that's completely related to what he just said. In verse 8, after he says all these things that we just went over, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So as we think about these things, let's think about rejoicing. Let's think about the joy that God has given us in the midst of things that are going on in our lives, as difficult as that may be. So we can continually experience the peace of God.